Welcome back to the Red Fern Book Review. I am your host, Amy Mayer, and today we're going to look at a pair of memoirs, both by childhood idols of mine. And after reading one of them, I loved my idol more. And after reading the second one, uh, the bloom was off the rose. I was I was a bit disappointed and disillusioned. So, but in many ways, it has to do with me and not the author. And I'll explain more. So today, we're going to talk about All In by Billie Jean King and Brat, an 80s story by Andrew McCarthy. But before we get to the books, I wanted to talk with you about a couple of things that I'm listening to. The first thing that I wanted to mention is an old-time radio show that is all also now a podcast, and you very well may be familiar with it. But it came to mind because as I was researching what I was going to talk about for the Billie Jean King biography, um, this came across my Google search. And that is Fresh Air with Terry Gross. And it's a cultural radio show, long-term show, that's um, been around since 1975. And it's done by NPR. And it's hosted by Terry Gross, who's been around since the beginning. And there's a great interview with her and Billie Jean King that I used to do some research for this book. So I wanted to mention it because this program is where I get some of my book ideas from. And uh, I think the interviews are fresh and Terry Gross is very calming and engaging and uh, if you haven't checked her out, or even if you know about the radio show, you may not know that they also have a podcast. So check that out. The second thing I wanted to mention is something um, that I discovered, and it is little mini audiobooks that you might know about that are put out by Audible. So Audible, as you know, is audiobooks, and they also have something called audio. Audible Originals, where they do little mini books. And that can be a good idea if you're just not really sure what you want to dive into. And actually, when you get into the audiobook world, it takes longer to listen to a book than to read the very same book. So sometimes if you want something like on a short drive, or in this case, I was uh, walking along the beach and um, the summer, Uh, a couple hours away from my house, and I just wanted a little something. And what I picked up is called, it was called Atomic Marriage, and it's a short story written by Curtis Sittenfeld, who's best known for uh, her books Prep, American Wife, and Rodham. And this book was narrated by Diane Lane, so that was also an extra bonus. And what I really liked about it, it was just just under an hour, 58 minutes long, and it is like going on a ride of reading a whole book, but it's, it's a short story. And it tells the story of a Hollywood power broker, Heather Thiessen, who has been sent, she lives in New York, and um, I think she lives in New York, but anyway, she is um, uh, sent to Alabama to deal with, with a very popular 
a marriage and self-help therapist named Brock Lewis. And he just seems the polar opposite of her. And in order for her to get there, she, you know, she arrives in this small town and you get that kind of feeling of, this is not, you know, Hollywood anymore. And her own marriage isn't great. Um, She had to leave her child to come visit this guy. And she isn't very impressed by what she knows about him. She has a lot of thoughts on who this guy is. He has this book. It's it's annoying. And it's a 12-point book called The Atomic Doctrine. And basically, if you follow this doctrine, you're going to have the perfect marriage. And it says things like, always make eye contact with your spouse. And so she meets him and he's very reluctant because what she's trying to do is convince him um, to sell his book. Um, And maybe I think make some changes to the book so it will sell in Hollywood. But what happens is she meets him and to her surprise, she likes him a lot. And so I'm going to leave that there, but um, I recommend it. And Surprisingly, there are some other authors, including Margaret Atwood, who've participated in Audible Originals. So it would be kind of like, I guess, Netflix Originals. Um, The only downside I would say, I found it a little bit expensive. It was just under $10. Maybe it was $9, but it is just an hour. So it depends what what you're looking for. But uh, I'm a bit of a mood reader or listener, and it's what I wanted to listen to at the time, and it worked for me. Okay, let's get to the books. So the first book I'm going to talk about, I'm going to talk about the one that I liked more. So the first book is All In by Billie Jean King. Now, Billie Jean King is an iconic figure of the 1970s. When you think of Billie Jean King, you can just put her in a long list of objects, people, events from that decade. And what comes to mind are things like Tang, homemade Chex Mix, Disco, Fluffernutter. Does anyone remember Fluffernutter? It was uh, it was marshmallow cream and it was packaged like peanut butter and came in a jar and you spread it on your toast. We had that in our house. Uh, rotary phones with a curly cord. David Bowie, Linda Ronstadt, eight-track tapes, um, having to turn the TV off by hand. And in this list, I would also include tennis. Tennis was huge in the 70s and 80s, and I think it was part of the cultural zeitgeist. Tennis is, and was, and still is, an elite sport. It originated certainly is an elite sport. But what happened in the 1970s is it seeped into the middle classes. And as you know, any park that you would go to now, there's probably a tennis court there. Um, you know, the, the net might be a bit ratty, but it's there. And it was very popular to play in the 70s. And I remember playing with my family on public courts and you would show up. I had two older sisters. I had a Chris Everett wooden racket. I remember I had blue trim. And you would sit. And the rule was you'd sit on the side of the court and wait for 30 minutes. And then it would be your turn. And I was the youngest. And so I would watch my dad and my sisters hit. And 
for the last five minutes, once they were all done, they would play with me. And I, I remember always looking forward to that time. And many people I know played. And at that time, I think a lot of us saw it as a pastime, like shuffleboard or ping pong or backgammon. You didn't, you weren't necessarily great at it, but you knew how to play. And the reason why this is so popular, I believe, is because at the same time, it was huge on television. And this was the beginning of the open era of tennis where amateurs and professionals would enter the four major tournaments. And there was the French Open, Australian Open, US Open, and Wimbledon. And even if you didn't play, there was a really good chance that you were watching Wimbledon. And at that time, because it was a bit of a newer sport um, to go on television or uh, be watched by the masses, it was filled with a cast cast of characters. There was less regulation, and it made it more exciting. So on the one hand, you had characters with uh, grace and class like Chris Everett, Arthur Ashe, Bjorn Borg. And then there were people with questionable sportsmanship charisma and bravado like Jimmy Connors, um, John McEnroe, and of course, Billie Jean. She falls into that. And, uh, oh, I want to just comment too on um, the the fashion from that time, which Billie Jean's part of. And I look at the cover that in this cover of the book um, that I have all in, She's wearing quite an iconic outfit. So first of all, she's there she is on the cover with her mullet and her big glasses, and she's in motion with her wooden racket. And uh, it says King on it, so she must have had her own line of rackets. And she's got a crisp white dress on, and it's got the big oversized lapels with, um, it looks like it's in black and white, so I can't see, but it's um, star like a star and stripe down one side. So that was very common. You would see like the big uh, white crisp outfits. Uh, tree, remember tree torn sneakers with just the one little color on the swoop. And then there were, um, you would also see um, socks, the little tennis socks where you couldn't really see the sock at all, except there'd be a colored ball off the back. And so these, these outfits with the white and then the little detailing, usually in a um, red or blue or yellow, um, they, they were, became part of fashion or, or streetwear that you would see as well. Okay, so back to the story. What is so great about Billie Jean? So Billie Jean, um, she coined one of my favorite quotes that is at the entrance to the U.S. Open, and it says, uh, pressure is privilege. So the fact if you can even play a sport and just have the privilege to be under pressure in sport, you're doing pretty well. So I think that puts things into perspective if you're ever stressed about a game, a match um, that you're entering. But Billie Jean, um, she was a powerhouse. And I grew up in a conservative corner of the Midwest in a conservative family. And I was too young to be around, but I did know very much about Gloria Steinem. And I couldn't relate to her marching in the streets for equality with her megaphone and us mag- um, Ms. Magazine. Um, I just saw her as unrelatable. But, and I didn't know, 
I didn't know until later all that she did and represented. But Billie Jean, she was fun and fierce and played a sport that I loved. And I didn't understand all that she was about either, but I could relate to her. And I just, I found her super charismatic. And after reading this book, I just loved her more. And her backstory, she was raised in a loving working class family. And her brother, Randy, who she remains very close to, he also turned out to be a pro baseball player. And she was introduced to the game in Southern California by... um, a classmate who was a member of a country club. And the second she hit that ball, she just loved it. And she loved um, all sports, but she knew at that time, so this was the 60s, that she wasn't going to be able to go very far in any of them because she was a woman. And But she knew, she felt there was room in tennis. And so she found out about a guy who was going around offering free lessons on public courts. And then he would go to different courts each day. And so she just ended up following him. Super determined, super excited. And she just um, ended up, she just kept playing and going and finding people to help her along the way. And as we know, she gets to the top of her field and she talks about how she does this. But one of the things she spends lots and lots of time talking about is her fight for women's rights and about equal pay and opportunity. And to her, her tennis racket was her weapon to fight for equal rights. And she ended up being the first female athlete to make $100,000 in a year. And she goes into huge detail about all the ways, like with the Virginia Slims um, League that she helped start, with uh, organizations that she started, all the little um, cracks in the ceiling that she made, and how she had to work so hard. And today, um, tennis is... I believe it's the only sport where there is equal pay and a lot of that huge part of that has to do with her. And at the very beginning of this book, there's a quote that she includes um, in the intro from Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And it says, fight for the things that you care about, but do do it in a way that will lead others to join you. And she was, I would call her a bit of a polarizing figure because she had always had people that loved her and people that weren't her fan. But the truth is when you read this book, she felt even more powerfully um, about women's rights than she even lets on. And so just hearing that firsthand was really, really powerful and moving and made me think as a woman how I've really benefited from the things that... um, crusaders like Billie Jean did before us. Um, She talks about, other things she talks about, she talks about her famous match with Bobby Riggs, which you've probably, um, if you didn't live through that, you would know about it from the movie Battle of the Sexes. And she talks about her friendship with Charles Schultz and Elton John, who were both two big tennis buffs. And uh, you might not all know, but Elton John wrote the story Philadelphia Free- Freedom about Billie Jean and the pro team that she started. And at the heart of this book, 
more than anything, this is a cause book. She's 77 and she wants to fire people up and have, um, I think she's looking for the next uh, person or people to lead after she's gone. And she also, another thing she talks about is the love of her life, Alana. And she goes into great detail about the pain that she went through um, trying to have um, an open life with her wife, which now just seems like not that big of a deal, but at the time it was. This is a very long book. Um, it has a full bibliography. also has a record of all the matches she played. You don't have to be a tennis buff to like this book, um, but it does read more, um, this is more of a cause book. Um, another book that is phenomenal um, that I know a lot of you know about is called Open by Andre Agassi. And that's a great book and you don't really even have to care about tennis at all um, if you don't, if you don't, um, if you don't even know the game, I think you'd really appreciate it. And he's so, he's also very honest. And um, I, he, he dishes a lot too. So, okay. So that's, that's that book. I loved it. Okay. So the second book was a little harder for me. It is called Brat, an 80s story by Andrew McCarthy. This is a slim book. Uh, it's about Andrew McCarthy, who was a teen idol in the 80s. He is now all grown up. He, this is his second book. He wrote a travelogue in 2012 called The Longest Way Home. And this is his follow-up. He's best known for his um, movie roles, Pretty in Pink, Less Than Zero, and St. Elmo's Fire. And he is now, um, uh, he has been in the past, editor-at-large for National Geographic Traveler magazine. He's a huge traveler. And Paul Thoreau, who I've talked about in an earlier episode, is one of his idols. And he has been a director for Orange is the New Black and The Blacklist. So he's no slouch and he has moved on. But of course, he will forever be known for the, that brief moment in the 80s when he probably couldn't walk out the door because everybody knew who he was. And so that's when I came of age. And he was um, the guy who I had his poster on my wall. So there was Rob Lowe and there was Tom Cruise, and those were obvious teen idols, but Andrew McCarthy was my idol. And the funny thing was, I wasn't alone. He was skinny and pale, and he um, would, I picture him in from Pretty in Pink with an oversized blazer and shoulder pads, and he has these bulging blue eyes, um, curly swoopy hair. And he always looked uncomfortable. And it turns out he was. So that's what you learn from the book. Um, the book really, what I think what I was hard for me is it, you know, when you have someone that you look up to like that when you're younger, you just kind of want them to stay there. And when you learn too much about the person, they just be kind of become a regular person. And I think the mystery was gone and I just became disappointed. And he even addresses this in the book that um, if you really were into him, it was probably more about you than about him. But Andrew McCarthy grew up in New York. Um, he had a very difficult father. He was one of three boys. 
His father did not approve of his career choice. Um, he really wanted to be um, an actor. He went to NYU briefly. He was a terrible student and ended up dropping out. But he talks about um, the moments that led to his success and then also gives um, little anecdotes of the movies that he was in. But the problem I have with this book is he he is an introspective person, which is what I think I was, you know, I, I, I was drawn to him. He seemed a little more complicated, interesting, but that also means on the page, he doesn't dish as much as I would like, and he's more controlled in his writing. Um, if you want someone who really goes there, uh, a book that I highly recommend is Rob Lowe's Stories I Only Tell My Friends. It's excellent, um, and I'm sure that he wrote this book in large part because of the success of that one. Um, in this book, Rob just lays it all out there about his problems and his successes, but it just seems very authentic, and it's not that um, it's not that uh, Andrew isn't authentic. I think he is. He's just more controlled. So some of the things he touches on, he talks about how he almost missed a call back to class, um, the movie that launched his career, because his roommate uh, forgot to pass on the message. Because remember, we didn't have cell phones. We relied on answering machines. And if you had a roommate, maybe you weren't going to get the message. And then... The other things he talks about, um, he talks about the New York Magazine article uh, that coined the group he was part of. He was part of a group called the Brat Pack. Sorry, that was a spin on the Rat Pack with Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin. And it was a group of people that were all lumped together because Many of them were in the same movies and they were following in the same circles, but turns out they weren't all that close. And that includes Rob Lowe, Emilio Estevez, Judd Nelson, Ali Sheedy, Mayor Winningham. But it turns out that um, Andrew wasn't really close with, I think, any of them. He kind of kept to himself. He does share some um, little anecdotes, other anecdotes, um, that are worthwhile. And one thing he reveals is that uh, he was uh, trying out for uh, Pretty in Pink, and John Hughes is in the room with his muse, Molly Ringwald. And apparently, uh, he tested for it, and John Hughes was like, oh, okay, next. Probably wanting Roblo or someone similar. And Molly Ringwald says, that is the guy that I would like. And so um, I think showing him what a teenage girl or who a teenage girl might be attracted to at that time. So I would be interested in hearing from you that um, didn't feel the connection that I felt to him. And if you felt the disappointment or if you thought it was kind of just a cool ride and um, take back on the 80s. But I wanted to conclude with this quote um, by Andrew McCarthy at the end of the book. And he says... Among a certain generation of people, the work I did as a young man will forever burn brightest. More importantly, it is the memory of the work that is so valuable to people, because in the memory of those movies exists a touchstone of youth, of when life was all ahead and when the future was a blank slate, when anything was possible. So thank you very much for joining today. 
and I wanted to welcome you back next week when I'm going to be um, talking with my friend Lorraine, who I've been wanting to have on the podcast for a while, and we both attended a Vancouver Writers Festival event with three strong women authors, and we're going to chat about it. And we might even chat a little bit about knitting, but not too much. We, we are knitting friends. <laughs> so anyway, thanks so much for joining and I will talk to you soon.